Good morning, friends. As you probably know by now, we are in our focus on peace uh, as part of who we call, feel called to be as friends and who we believe Christ calls all of us to be about. Some of you are really getting into this. I'm noticing that you know, Scott Ankeny brought a peace mug this morning, so trying to keep up with the Ankenys, I guess. Uh, this morning, uh, I'm going to say something sort of shocking that may be a new idea to you, and that is that for all that we get it right as Quakers, sometimes we get it wrong. As I thought about um, a, a title for this sermon, uh, this uh, idea of um, getting it wrong and other Quaker practices came to mind because we've so consistently done this over our 400-year history that you could say it's sort of a pattern or a habit with us. And it starts early on. Uh, George Fox, um, whatever you might think of George Fox, sometimes went into churches and interrupted the sermon and got you know beat up with a church Bible a couple times. And if I had George's ear, I might say there might be more effective ways to get people to listen to your point. Or James Naylor makes a fake triumphant entry uh, in England and gets in serious trouble for that. And that's just the early guys. Uh, we've had multiple splits where things haven't worked very well. Uh, we've had lots of times that we haven't gotten it right. And I don't say that to beat up on us. And I think that's one of the things I want to be really careful of this morning is that when we talk about how we get it wrong, so often that gets into a kind of our shame grid. It gets into our way of thinking of things and we say, well, we're not very good. And um, you know, Woody Guthrie said, I hate a song that makes you feel like you're no good because that's no good. And I feel like that about a sermon that makes you feel like you're no good. Maybe I haven't done my job very well if you leave feeling like I'm saying we're no good. So let me just say that up front. Um, that's not my point. One of the places that uh, has been on my heart in the last five years in particular, and I've talked about it some up front, is uh, our relationship with indigenous people and the ways that we live on indigenous land. And one of the people uh, in well, I should say, and that happens here. That's not just removed. That's not just someplace else. The Shehalem Valley is a place that is indigenous land that we live on. So one of the guys that was really um, integral in Quakers and others moving out here is a guy named William Hobson. Uh, he's a good looker. If you want some, some, uh, some details about how to have both a party, uh, business in the front and party in the back, and party under your chin, apparently, William's your guy. And he comes out here from Iowa, um, and we know a lot about what William Hobson was thinking because he kept a good journal. Uh, there's a book by Ralph Beebe that some of you may know called A Garden of the Lord, and I've always found that kind of, um, at, at, the, at, at best, interesting. Let me put it that way. Because this is how Hobson describes what he hopes the Shehalem Valley will be. And it sort of seems to me that he doesn't notice that other people might have thought of this as a gift of God to them before he thought of it as a gift of God to himself. So here's a couple quotes from William's journal. I have been pressed for more than six years that some settlement of friends ought to be formed in these parts for the good of the race of mankind. That it was laid on me to work for it as the Lord should direct and make way. Friends whose duty it might be to settle here. 
Therefore, it was not all of me, but in the providence of God. And then speaking of his meeting back in Iowa, that this meeting will rather possess missionary spirit enough to gladly let some suitable members go to form a settlement there, here in the Shalem Valley, and make it a garden of the Lord. So this is how William Hobson is thinking about Oregon. This is how William Hobson is thinking about the Shehalem Valley. And just for some historical context, the Kalapuya, who are the uh, indigenous people who live here, have been removed some about 14 years earlier by a treaty. Um, they've been removed to the Grand Ronde Reservation. So when Hobson shows up, the government is selling this land, the Kalapuya land. Uh, Hobson buys land in 1875. This writing is from 1870. So that gives you some sort of idea of what's going on. The Kalapuya signed the treaty because they've gone from, say, six or 7,000 people in the tribe. Because of disease, they're down to about 600 people, and they don't really have a lot of other options. So that's the historical context this is happening in. We might say that uh, William Hobson kind of had a, a swing and a miss on this. I would say this is not getting it right. This is not getting it right. In fact, you might call this bad faith and bad practice. And it raises this question, how does someone, and actually multiple someones, because William Hobson doesn't do this by himself. William Hobson is in touch with his meeting back in Iowa. He's trying to do this prayerfully. Before they move out here, they decide together that this is the right thing to do, that this is what God wants done. And so it raises the question, how does a group of people who care about that of God and everybody, who care about peace, who care about justice, who care about integrity, how does that group of people make a decision that so clearly dehumanizes and dispossesses other people of what's most important to them? Their land, their home, their traditions. And the answer is probably not that difficult. Manifest destiny those of you who remember anything from middle school history will remember this term, manifest destiny. And, and this is a painting that comes from that. Um, and the more you know about the painting, the more kind of disturbing it is because you have, you know, the expansion bringing the light. And as you probably can't see it on these screens, but, you know, there's some indigenous people on the edge of the darkness uh, being pushed out of the land. And you see the trains and the stagecoach and the riders and some miners down in the bottom. And these people are bringing the light to this darkness. And this is the consciousness of Christian America in the 19th century. And the guy who came up with this quote, uh, Manifest Destiny, is a guy by the name of John O'Sullivan. And he's not by himself in this, but he's the, he's the person putting words to this. So from 1839, before he's coined the term, he says this, all this will be our future history to establish on earth the moral dignity and salvation of man, the immutable truth and the beneficence of God for this blessed mission to the nations of the world, which are shut out from the life-giving light of truth, has America been chosen. What a remarkable thing to say. I don't think I could say with that much confidence that I ate the right breakfast, let alone that I know that God wants me to go do this in this way. Right? I mean, this is... The hubris in this statement is amazing, but it's also overarching. This is what people thought. Here's the second quote from O'Sullivan, the one that uh, 
that coins the term manifest destiny. It is our manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions. Again, uh, this is remarkable in the true sense of the word. How can you, it's worth comment that somebody would think and that a whole group of people would agree that the only people God can work through is us. Right? And that's a pretty amazing thing to think. Edward Centella, reflecting on this, says, What violent good luck you had. When you bought your home, you received stolen property. But the blood had dried, the war forgotten, and it seemed your God himself had granted you this land. And when you put it in that kind of a stark light, you kind of go, hmm, yeah, that's troubling. That's a problem. And that's definitely bad faith and bad practice, even if that's culturally accepted, that somehow we are the only ones that God shines the light through, and therefore we have the right to take and do whatever we want. I want to just take a minute to recognize that um, we don't have enough time this morning, to enough runway this morning, to say everything we could say about how we might work for justice for indigenous peoples. That's a really long conversation and a really nuanced conversation. But to notice a couple things. One of the words that I've run into as I've pushed into understanding a little better is this word survive, survivance. And survivance is a word that says basically we're still here. We have a tendency to say of indigenous people that that happened then. And it's not happening now. That those cultures existed then and those cultures don't exist now. And that's not true. These cultures still exist, these people still exist, their values still exist, their humanity still exists. So a couple brief notes. Indigenous people are still here. Their culture still exists. And the marginalization and oppression of indigenous people is still continuing in all kinds of ways. And we see the big ways on the news when you think of Standing Rock um, and, and I mean, there's a lot of other examples of this that keep on happening. So to have some awareness that this is going on is important. Here's some things we can do, and it's just the beginning of the list. We can, at the very least, honor the treaties. At the very least, we can do what we agreed to do, even if they're you know, inherently often unjust. We can at least keep our promises. We can give indigenous people recognition and agency and sovereignty. So often when we, people talk about how to help indigenous people, we don't treat them like people. We say, well, we're going to solve this problem for you too, which if you can imagine if somebody said that to you who had been unkind or unfair or unjust to you in the past, you might well not want their help again in the same way. I was at Les Schwab last year and I really didn't know what to say, but there was an indigenous person in front of me. Um, and the contract came out to sign for the tires. And he said, I don't know that I should sign this because last time we signed something, we indigenous people signed something, you took all this land. It was kind of a joke and kind of not. And I didn't even know what to say to him, except that I went, oh, here's all this stuff I've been learning personified. Like this is happening. So we can give indigenous people recognition and agency and sovereignty. 
And we can recognize, this one seems so simple, right? We can recognize indigenous people as people, just like we're people and we're unique and we're also a group. We can do that and we can try to honor their culture. I think I may have mentioned this before when I was at, um, went down to Grand Ronde for a, um, a cultural summit. And one of the first things they talked about was trying to get, trying to stop the state from spraying uh, herbicides on the, on, the, on the side of the roads. And this was a big enough deal that this was one of the first things presented and it was for an hour and a half that they talked about this. And I went, oh my gosh, I had no idea that killing what I think are weeds beside the road is a way of violating your culture. And so our work to try to understand that culture is in some ways often simple, but it means listening and paying attention and recognizing this is a group of people. They're still here. We can treat them with love and respect like we ought to treat people. So that said, let's go back to Hobson. Our tendency, at least my tendency, is to vilify people like William Hobson. And yet, as you read his journal, Hobson is more complex and nuanced than that. He loves his family. He loves his faith community. He writes in his journal about his middle school son and his not doing well in the climate of Iowa, and he's very concerned for him. He thinks about his wife and that his wife might like the climate in Oregon better than Iowa. He thinks about his community and wants his community to release, as we saw in the quote, to release people to come and be here. He earnestly believes that what he's doing is of God. You know, he, he's not some Machiavellian villain who is you know, scheming and plotting and laughing at how he's going to do this. He sincerely believes that this is the work of God. And maybe we choose to vilify somebody like Hobson because if we didn't, it makes it a little too close to home. If a man like William Hobson can be as monumentally misguided as he was, maybe so can we. I found this quote from the Talmud to be really helpful. I think, I think we have a slide of it here. I hope it, yep. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. And I think so often when we run into the enormity of the world's grief, whether that's historically or whether that's in the present and whether that's about race or about culture or about economics or keep on filling in the blanks, we can be really overwhelmed by the enormity of that grief. So the question becomes, what do we do? And I thought about this, I thought, you know, what we need to do is think about what we're not thinking about. That's easy, right? Think about what you're not thinking about. We could start a list of all the things that we already know should be different and better. We're pretty aware. Those things are in, in front of us a lot. And that's what we know of. But the question becomes, what are our pitfalls? What are we unaware of? Where are we willing to accept the lens of our cultural distortion that means that we're not seeing the things that God really wants us to see? And so part of that is to step back and take some awareness of it. Maybe even in the ways that we're trying to make things better. Maybe we're not always good to do that the way God calls us to. I was encouraged, in a sense, that 
This is not a new thing. We know this from Scripture. Paul in Romans 12, which we sang the first part of that, we sang verse 1, take our ordinary lives, the ones that we live every day. We sang that this morning. But Paul continues to say, be changed. Be transformed by God's work in your mind. Think about things differently. This is how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. And to me, this seems to be the heart of how we address the kind of pitfall of where Hobson and his community fail. Right? I mean, in some sense, Hobson and, and the friends in Iowa do what we talk about in the sermon, like the three-legged stool, right? Like, what, what, what's my experience? What's God saying to me? What's my community experience? What's God saying to my community? And what's, you know, what's our, uh, the communion of the saints, right? What does scripture say? What does history say? How has God worked in the past? There are ways that you can fit Hobson's narrative into that and say, yeah, Hobson discerned well, except when you stop and think about walking humbly, doing justice, loving mercy. Kind of missed on those. And this idea that if we pay attention to what God is suggesting, if we're attentive to what God is doing, that God will transform the way we look at things by the way we think about things. That we can trust that God will be true to that. Maybe in a sense the heart of this message is stay centered. Pay attention to what God's saying about this stuff. Another helpful filter to run in asking if we've been truly faithful in the situations that we're in is to look at 1 John. John is pretty direct in chapter 2. He talks about love. Whoever says, I am in the light while still hating a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Whoever loves a brother or sister abides in the light, and in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. So it feels like we have some pretty good guide rails to think about how we might be about peace and to avoid the distortions of our culture that distract us from what real peace would be about. That if we can run this filter to say, am I really loving my brother or sister? Right? And I know, I know that can get, I can start talking about tough love and all these ways that people characterize love. But I think, I think there's a level at which we can say, if I, you know, as Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what love looks like. I think we can look at these things that are coming up in our lives, in our culture, that maybe, are we being loving in the way we're responding? I think if Hobson and company had looked a little more carefully about whether they were being loving to everybody in the situation, they would have had, a, they would have had at least a moment to pause. To ask the question, is God doing a transformative work in the way that you are thinking about what this is? And one of the tendencies of 
people all through history is to assume we're smarter or better or more capable than the people who came before us. And history continues to prove that we're really not. Sometimes we make the same mistakes again. Sometimes we're inventive enough to make new ones. But uh, there's a level at which we need to make sure that we're not being uh, untrue about what we know about ourselves. That we're humans just like folks in the 19th century were human, or folks in the 5th century were human, or folks in the 10th century BC were human. That we have proclivities to have blind spots. We have proclivities towards selfishness. We have proclivities to do things that aren't the best for everybody and aren't the most loving thing. And so to say, it's really important, it's really important, it's critical that if we're going to be people of peace, that we do the work of listening to what God is saying to us. That we allow the space for God to transform our minds, to transform our thinking. And that we really do run these filters of, is this justice? Is this mercy? Is this loving? And am I working my best to be humble because I may get it wrong? Like I said at the beginning, I hope that this is a message of hope and not a message of discouragement. Because I think if we're honest, we all know that these things are true. We just don't like to talk about them much. And there's hope that God is willing to transform us. And there's hope that we really can be the people of justice and mercy and love. So let's take some time, friends, to listen well. I've got some queries here if they're helpful. Please use them if they're not. Ignore them. How do you or we need to be aware of the cultural distortion of our perspective? Are you or we doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly? Are you or we demonstrating the love of God as we work for the kingdom of God? And finally, is your or our faithfulness motivated beyond our own betterment? So let's take time to listen, friends. If you have a message, uh, if you're on Zoom, you can unmute yourself and let us know who you are. If you're here in uh, the meeting house, if you stand, a microphone will be brought. And again, if you could say your name so folks know uh, on Zoom who's talking. Um, let's take some time to listen to what Christ might be speaking to us.